So when you watch that video, you see a man who stumbles and gets his leg pinned between the platform and the train, and it takes an army to save him. I want you to put yourself in that situation, and I want you to think, if that was you, if you, if you were in that situation, you saw someone who was struggling, and in all honesty, how would you respond? Now, we all like to think, hey, we're just like the Australians, which are in that video. We would all rally together, and we'd all push on. I mean, that train weighed thousands of pounds. And if you watch carefully, you can see it tilt, and it frees the man's leg. But I, I'm probably a little bit more of a pessimist. If that happened in L.A., I don't know. How would we, how would we react? Oh, man, I'm going to be late for work now. Now the train that I was waiting for is now backed up because this train, because this guy can't figure out how to get on a train by himself. I mean, whatever it is. And there's that frustration. We get irritated by people who've made a bad choice or slipped and fallen or who are broken or have done something wrong. I want us to see that image because that should be the image of the church. That should be the image of this community of believers who follow Jesus. That when somebody is broken or has failed or has done something on their own that either affects them or other people, our response isn't judgment, frustration, anger. It's a responsiveness that says, I'm going to help them. I'm going to seek to restore what is broken in their lives. This morning we want to talk about this because as we're continuing on this just journey called living in community, which means being a, a, a body of people who, because we choose to follow Jesus, we are forced, in a sense, into these relationships called the church, the people of God coming together, that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18 for you and I how we're supposed to function together, how we're supposed to live in community, in healthy relationships, because this is so key to his mission and his purpose. Because if we can't figure out how to love and to care and to, to be with each other, then we'll never get beyond ourselves. We'll never get to the world. We'll never get to his mission, his purpose of why we're here. So we're walking through Matthew 18 to experience that. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 as we walk through this and, and learn how do you and I become people who seek restoration in the lives of others? How do we become people who are actively pursuing helping someone who's fallen, helping someone who's strayed away, helping, helping someone who's stuck in a cycle of sin in their lives? So let's go ahead and let me read verse 10 through verse 14 of Matthew 18, then we'll talk about it together. Jesus, again in his word, says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man comes or, or owns a hundred sheep and then one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, before we jump into the specifics of the passage, a couple of, couple of things, uh, some some things you need to know about the passage we just read and some context to understand. So if, if you're reading, I usually will, when, when we're walking through a passage, I'm reading from New International Version, NIV. And if you read through NIV, if you're really astute, you figure out something's missing, an entire verse. If you read, you go from verse 10 to verse 12, and there's no verse 11. And when you read that, you're thinking, okay, is this a major typo that the translators of the NIV forgot to put an entire verse in? Let me explain what, what's there. And so, so when translators translate the scriptures, and this is a side note, it's not necessarily specifically tied to our, our theme this morning, but, but I want you to understand the way it's, it's translated. So when, trans, when the new NIV was translated, in most modern translations, they will try to go back to the, most, the oldest and most accurate transcripts that we have of scripture. 
And so those oldest and what we perceive to be most accurate did not have what verse 11 represents, which is actually the same verse you'll find in, in Luke 19.11 or 19.10, where it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, which obviously fits in the context here. But in the most reliable manuscripts, it wasn't there, so that's why we don't have it in our Bible. But understand that what they think is most likely sometimes a scribe who got a little bit off his responsibilities may insert something that he knew was a part of other parts of scripture and that could have been the occasion there so i want you to know that because sometimes people read wait a second my bible's falling apart there's missing verses and i'm not being told the whole story which by the way chapters and verse references came many many years after scripture was written when when it was first written they didn't have chapter one chapter two verse five verse six didn't have that we put that in to give us reference points to handle the volume of literature that we have in front of us just a side note so your bible is totally trustworthy we got that okay now moving on i just wanted to make sure of that but understanding in the context if we back up the early part of this passage remember jesus is talking his disciples and in the midst of that he has a child that's in front of him maybe even sitting on his lap and it's a toddler And if you're here last week, he transitions from talking about children, like approaching the kingdom of God as a child, and he says these little ones, or the least of these. And when he uses those phrases, what he's saying is not necessarily a child by age, but somebody who we we would consider the weaker person or a less mature person than us that may be struggling in life. So that's who he's referring to in this passage about these little ones or the little ones or the least of these. And so when, when we understand that, he's talking about that one sheep that goes astray is the immature one. And immature people and people who struggle, which is all of us at one time or another in our life, we have problems to the point where we actually may walk away. We may rebel. We may distance ourselves from people, distance ourselves, or at least try to distance ourselves from God, thinking somehow, if I'm broken and I've failed, I can live in this misery by myself and somehow be okay. That plays into the hands of what the enemy wants to do in our lives. And that's why Jesus says we're supposed to seek restoration. We're supposed to go after the one. We're supposed to bring people back who have gone off or gone astray. And so this morning we want to talk about what that is in our lives. And in verse 10, the the first few things that Jesus highlights for you and I is a foundation that you and I have to change our default in life on to these things so that we can become people who are about restoring other people. If we don't change the default, then we will go the way of the world. And that is, let the person fend for themselves. They deserve to get what they're getting. They made their decision. Now they have to live with it, which is things that we've thought and said about people in our lives. But Jesus said there's another way of restoration. So the first thing, the first three things I want to talk about, Jesus highlights in verse 10, are the foundation for restoration in our lives. The first one in the first part of verse 10 is the concept of mercy. Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. The word despise literally means to look down on somebody, to pass judgment on somebody. So Jesus is saying, when you see somebody who's broken, who's failed, someone who got their leg pinned between a platform and a train, he says, don't despise them. Don't get frustrated with them. Don't be irritated. And don't judge them. Don't despise them. Because he cares deeply for them. And the reason Jesus would say that is, what is our normal response? It's not mercy. Now, a few of us who are really special, and we can walk on water, maybe that's that's for some, but the rest of us, what's our default? I mean, I'm sure in that crowd of hundreds of people in that train station, there are a few frustrated commuters, don't you think? Really? Come on, man. Get your leg out of there. What's your problem? Seriously. And then the, then the, the handful that were willing to push on the train. Where do you find yourself in that? 
Do you default to judgment or to mercy, which cares deeply for the person who's made a bad choice and gotten themselves into a situation that maybe they can't get themselves out of? See, what happens when we function in judgment, what we do is we, we actually make a, a bad situation worse. Because when someone goes astray, Jesus is talking about the one that wanders off. They're, they're trying to isolate themselves. They're trying to get away from people. They're trying to maybe even get away from God. And so when we default to judgment, guess what we do? We drive the wedge even bigger. There's a greater distance now. Because any opportunity for that person to come back into the flock or the fold, we're beginning to close the door because we're passing judgment on them. And therefore, what happens is that we become divided. We become divided because we make decisions to pass judgment on people because their behavior, their decisions, maybe even goes down to their race or the way that they live their life. Whatever we, in our culture, we have lots of criteria that we use to divide and to separate and for, for, the, for the majority of us that live in the majority culture in the United States, we don't necessarily know what it feels like to live in isolation. But for others who maybe you've come from other countries or you have a different skin color than the, the dominant culture, you've experienced what it feels like to be alienated or isolated because people pass judgment. And I know for me, I, I experienced that probably for the first time, what it really meant to feel like I'm, I'm being ostracized or separated out just because I'm different than the rest. When I was working, I, I think I've shared this, at a relief organization in Hollywood, great relief organization, and it helped to feed thousands of people in Los Angeles and even did a lot of outreach around the world. But we had, we had a kind of two classes of employees at that organization. Those who worked outside, which was me, with food distribution and driving trucks and forklifts and, and doing stuff where you're sweating all day and, and you're dealing with food that sometimes is rotted, so you're throwing it away. So you're getting all kind of stuff all over you, and you don't always smell very pleasant. And the first time that I went to chapel, once a week we would have a chapel service. And so I remember the first time I went to chapel was the end of a day, and I walked into the chapel and all of the, the office workers came down from the offices into the chapel. And then all of the dock workers and all of us who were driving forklift and stuff, we came in the back door. And as soon as we walked in the back door, the back row or the back pew, the only pew that this was true of, had a white sheet over it. And when I walked in, I'm like, what is that for? I mean, we have ropes. I mean, maybe they use sheets. Don't sit here because there's a white sheet. I don't know. So I walk in, and then I realize, as the other guys who I'm working with, they all file into the back row. That's where we were allowed to sit. All the guys that worked outside who stunk a little, that maybe had a little bit of rotted food on their jeans, weren't allowed to sit on the pews. We had to sit on a white sheet in the back row. And I remember sitting through that whole entire chapel service, watching things going up front, feeling like, I don't even matter. I've worked all hard all day, and I don't even have the ability or the right to step forward to be a part of what's going on. And see, you and I don't realize that when our default is judgment, that's exactly what we do to people. We stick them in the back row. Nothing to say those who are in the back row today, okay? That's usually in our church. It's by choice. People choose the back row. But that's why we have ropes, because we try to force people forward. People who choose the front row are a little bit different. That's why no one's in the front row right now. That's a side note. It's another conversation. But understanding that that's what we do. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can't despise people who are less mature, who have rebelled, who have failed in life. You have to be merciful towards them, which leads to the second thing about that word despise, is that the another, another point of foundation for, for this restoration is compassion. Because Jesus says despise, and despise can actually also mean to be apathetic. It, it can mean to do nothing, which means 
you don't judge somebody, but you just don't do anything. You see them in their state, you see them broken, you see them struggling, you see them... And so you just take a step back and think, you know, this is not my responsibility. Somebody else is going to take care of this person. I don't have to be the one that does this. Somebody else can do it. That's what despise means. You kind of turn a blind eye to somebody's brokenness. It's like walking on that train platform and seeing the guy stuck between the, the platform and the train, and then you just keep on walking. In fact, I've watched that video a number of times, and I watch people do that. There's a woman who comes by, and I don't know if she looks at her watch or not. It's early on before anybody starts pushing on the train, and you can tell by her pace she's irritated. And she's thinking, this is not my problem. I got to get to work. I got to do something. But this is, and she just keeps on walking. How many times in our life do you and I not have the compassion to see somebody in their brokenness, to be willing to reach out to help them? Think about it in, in, in your life. Think about the people around you who've maybe disappeared from your life. Or you know that they have knowingly, intentionally isolated themselves. And now they're at a distance from you. See, you and I have to understand that our simple point of reaching out in compassion and mercy could be the lifeline that brings them back into a right relationship with God. We could be the one that God is waiting for to do that. We could be the one that God is saying you need to have compassion. And when people disappear from our lives, we have to ask, ask the question, is there a reason that I do something? Did they make a choice? Not, not to say, well, will I go after them or will I not? It's to discover that maybe I need to reach out to them. Maybe I need to shoot them an email or a text message or call them or whatever it might be or shoot them a note and say, hey, I've been praying for you. Simple things like that. I'm telling you, when we do simple things like that, to, and what it does to people who have sinned and failed is it reassures them that we love them. Because silence speaks loudly. For most people who are isolated and who are broken, they hear you're being judged. I don't love you. I don't care. But see, Jesus is saying there's the one that you have to go after. There's the one that you have to have mercy for. And there's the one that you have to have compassion for. And the the third thing that Jesus says in verse 10 is he said the other point of foundation for restoration is to value people. Jesus says, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, let me explain. What in the world is Jesus talking about? So, we don't understand all about angels, but some people will use this passage to say, hey, we've all got a guardian angel that follows us around. And I've heard all kind of speculation about what a guardian angel does or doesn't do, and if he gets an extra workout because some of us sin more than others, and all kinds of things. We don't know specifically, but what we do know from this passage is what Jesus is communicating that God loves people so much that even angels who may have some kind of assignment for people are attentive to the Father to see from Him what that person may need. He's saying even the angels look to the face of the Father to see what His people might need, and they're responsive in this process of restoration to seeing. So there's this great value, even the way that God has structured the spiritual realm that we don't even see. God is valuing people and wanting to restore people back to Him. So even things that we cannot see are in the process of restoration. So who are we as physical beings to somehow become a roadblock for God's restorative process in the life of people? If the angels get it, what Jesus is saying is that you and I should get it. Because God is always in work in people's lives. There is never a person who is in existence on this planet right now that God is not actively pursuing and actively working in their life. They just don't know it. And some of us just don't know it. 
And there comes moments in life where those things become clear. God's trying to restore. It may become before a, by a person reaching out. It may be coming by a realization. It's like in the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The prodigal son left and came back, and, but he didn't do that all on his own. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, well he left, and his dad let him go, and which he should have because his son made his decision, but he knew that the door was always open. And we know the story. He takes a third of his dad's wealth, his inheritance. He blows it in no time. And then when the party's over, he finds himself fighting with pigs for food. And then it says this. It says, then he came to his senses. And when came, coming to his senses, what did he say? He said, I'll, I would be better off as a servant in my dad's household than here with the pigs. That's a profound statement because he's, what he's saying is, even if I have to go back as a servant, I know my dad will receive me back. I know that I blew it and I did the wrong thing, that even, even with all that, my dad's love is so great, at least he will probably receive me back as a servant in the household. So he went back. What if he knew his dad was mean, judgmental, didn't care, could never be pleased? Do you think he would have gone back? No, because the door would have been closed. But he knew that his dad valued that even in his broken state, even though he had betrayed his dad, he knew if he went back, somehow the door would still be open for him. And that's for you and I. If, if we're going to lay this foundation of, of restoring people in life, we have to keep the door open. And we're far too quick at closing it. We come with all these reasons of why this is the last time. I'm never going to reach out to this person again. They've, they've blown it one too many times. The one thing that I'm so grateful about when it comes to this thing called judgment about the way that God works is God is the judge. I don't have to be. Jesus will determine when someone has reached their last try because he's the judge. I don't have to be. I'm just in the process of seeing him try to restore people, which leads to the next understanding of what does restoration require in our lives? What does it require that we have to be willing to do in our life in order for people to be restored, to be brought back in? So going on, look at verse 12. The first thing of, of restoration that it requires of us is it requires accountability, which, if we're honest, many of us don't like. So Jesus says, he says what do you think? He said, if a man owns a hundred sheep and then one of them wanders away. Jesus is making a reference to something that everybody, who's, his disciples who are sitting there listening would totally get. He's using the number a hundred, 99 and one, because people understood in that day and age in Palestine that the average flock was about a hundred. There's about a hundred sheep that, that a shepherd would oversee. And so when he says that, they're like, okay, yeah, I, I've seen flocks like that. I know about what a hundred sheep look like. And so he, he's using this analogy, and what he's saying is that this shepherd must be a good enough shepherd to know he's got a hundred sheep, and that out of those hundred sheep, one of them is missing. There's an accountability. He, he's accountable for those sheep, therefore he knows when one isn't there, he knows when one is lost. He knows when one is astray. Is it because he counts? I don't know. Is it because he knows what every single face looks like? I don't know. But he knows when one is absent because he's showing great value. But there's this accountability. Now, let me explain what Jesus is communicating here because we many times take this passage in this verse and we twist it to put the, to put the weight of it on one person. So we call the pastor, some, some of us in Scripture, a shepherd. So you say, okay, the pastor is the shepherd of the flock. Therefore, if someone strays, it is the pastor's responsibility to bring them back. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I've had people say that and people think that. It's not my responsibility. You're the shepherd. Okay, let's take a step back for a second. Who is the best shepherd of all time? We all know his name. 
It's not a trick question. Jesus. Okay? How many sheep did Jesus have? Let's just use the term that we normally use. How many disciples did Jesus have in his life? It's not a trick question. Twelve. Twelve. The God of the universe in human flesh had twelve. Now, he had lots of people, hundreds if not thousands, that would come and listen to him, but he only had twelve disciples. And even one, Judas, we know, betrayed him and took his own life. So you could cut it to 11. You want to add Paul back in? We can get a nice round dozen, okay? But we're talking about 12 people. Jesus knew and was accountable for 12 people. So when one of them didn't show up for a disciples meeting, guess what? Jesus knew. He could count. Let's see, there's 11. We're missing one. He knew them very well. He knew them in relationship. He knew them. He chose them. He called them. They were in relationship with him. He had 12. You and I need to understand something. The process of restoration is not the responsibility of the pastor. It's the responsibility of the church, all of us. And the reason we we understand that is because Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm going to pastor thousands of people, and I'm going to go after each one when they they fall. No, I'm going to look after 12, and I'm going to disciple them so they can disciple other people. Now, you've heard me say this a bunch of times, but I'll tell you, you know where shepherding really happens? It doesn't happen here on a Sunday morning. It happens in community groups. It happens by a handful of people. Here's the thing. I'll be honest with you. People will come to me and say, hey, I've been gone for three weeks, and I'm probably a bad pastor because sometimes I don't know. But I'll guarantee you, if you go to a community group and you don't show up one week, they're going to know you're missing. They're going to know your story. They're going to know your name. They're going to know your phone number and your address, and they're going to get a hold of you because they love you. They care for you. And you and I need to understand there's two, two sides to this coin called accountability. And that is, we always put it on, well, you have to come find me because I'm the one that left, and I'm the one that didn't show up, and the church doesn't care. But you know, many times when I hear that from people, they never took the time to invest in relationship in anybody else. They never let themselves be known. And suddenly when they disappear, they say, the church didn't care about me. But they never cared to invest themselves in the lives of other people. I've watched it happen. When you invest in the lives of people and you know people by name and you know their stories and you're in a small group or you're in an LTG and you're in a community group, if you disappear, somebody's going to know you're gone because they love you and they care for you. If, you're, if we're a church of hundreds and someone disappears and like, oh, the church doesn't care for me. With our attendance patterns, honestly, we don't know who's here and who's not, honestly. Because most people, you know what, when people show up one or two times a month, they say, I'm a committed churchgoer, one or two times a month. It's quiet in here because you're like, hey, you caught me on my Sunday when I'm here, right? It's true. But if you're in a community group, which our community group meets tonight, I, I look forward to it. Because I'm getting to know a group of people. They're knowing me and I'm knowing them. And if they don't show up, guess what? I found out most of them just don't, sh- not, if they're not going to show up, we already know we can advance. Because they're bummed. Oh, I had something else come up. We can't make it. It's, we really want to be a community group. But that happens very rarely. Our community group, usually all of us are intact together. Why? Because we value relationship. Now, I know you keep hearing about it. You keep hearing about it. Community groups are not going away. They're here to stay. Because it's what God's called us to be. It's how we disciple people. It's how we obey the mission of Jesus in our lives and in our church. Second thing, going on in verse 12. Restoration requires risk. So Jesus goes on. He says, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to the, look for the one that has wandered off? Think about this. Jesus is giving us kind of this comparison. 
So think about it. Okay, now if you're a good shepherd, wouldn't you play the percentages? I got 99 obedient good sheep that are sticking around. I got one that's kind of lost it and is off on their own. And why would I leave the 99 and expose them to go after the one? Jesus is showing the value. Now, what we understood probably most likely if you had a shepherd of 100, he probably had under shepherds, which means he didn't leave them completely alone. But he did leave and leave his, he left with his covering as the authority to go after the one. Jesus is giving us this because what he's saying is he would leave in the hills in the safety of where the 99 were to go and to risk out in the valley or wherever the sheep would go, that he would have to go find it. And he would put himself at risk because a a, a lamb that is isolated by itself has become the target of the predator. And so what happens is that he's now risking to go after them. You know, one of the other things that you and I risk when we try to help people walk in restoration is not only finding ourselves being in places that maybe we put ourselves on the line to go and find somebody, to go track them down, but even more so, one of the greater risks for you and I is that when we show up and we reach out, is that someone turns around, and in our good intentions to try to help them, they turn on us. And that's what happens many times in, in the process of restoration that shuts it down. What happens when an animal is wounded? It's in its most vulnerable, dangerous place. Why? Because it perceives everything is a predator. Any, even if it's someone tr- trying to come and help, it's a predator. Why? Because it's been wounded and it's expecting to be wounded again. The same thing is true of human beings, believe it or not. Sometimes when someone comes to offer help, we're thinking, no, I'm going to get wounded or something's going to happen. So we become the lightning rod for somebody else's pain or failure. So we think, I don't want any piece of that. I don't want to do that. That's too painful. I don't want to put myself at risk here. I don't want to be the scapegoat. I don't want to be the lightning rod. So what do we do? We despise them. We become apathetic. We do nothing. Jesus is saying it requires that you and I be willing to risk even being injured ourselves to help that person be restored. There's an old movie now, which shows my age. It came out in the 80s or 90s. It's called Lady Hawk. Some of you might remember it. It was Matthew Broderick and Michelle Pfeiffer before anybody even knew who they were. And really, when I've seen clips of the movie since then, it really wasn't very well done either. But there's really some great kind of themes and imagery in that movie that kind of talk about friendship and valuing people. And basically, the, the, the summary of, of kind of the, the plot line is... There's this man and this woman that want to be together, but there's this evil bishop who doesn't want them to be, so he casts this spell over them so that they're together. But the problem is, is during daylight hours, she becomes a hawk while he's a man, and at night he becomes a wolf when she becomes a woman again. So they can never be together. So the whole process of the movie is, is how they're going to confront the bishop, they're going to break the spell, and they're going to live happy ever after. But on this journey, they encounter uh, Philippe, who's, this, who's Matthew Broderick, who's this thief. And he kind of becomes their friends and sees their story and knows what's going on. But during the whole time, the man who's the man wolf never really likes him, doesn't trust him at all. And so there's this tension in their relationship. Until one night when the sun sets and goes down and he come, becomes the wolf, transitions from man to wolf, he finds himself on a very thin layer of ice out on a lake. The, the ice breaks and he falls in. And as the wolf, he's going to die. He's going to drown. Philippe jumps into the water And of course, the wolf's reaction is, your predator. And he turns on him and starts clawing him as he claws his way out of the water, up onto the ice, and onto the shore. 
Philippe almost dies, and they pull him out. And the next morning, as the wolf turns back to man, he goes after Philippe again, 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 not trusting him, thinking he's a bad person. Why are you even with us? And then he sees, as he's laying there on the ground, he sees all these scratch marks and all these scars and blood on his chest. And one of the other companions who's traveling tells the man that he needs to reconsider what he's saying because the scars that he sees on Philippe's chest were caused by him when he was the wolf. And if it weren't for Philippe jumping in the water the night before, you would be dead. See, you and I need to understand that's the risk in restoration. If you and I will go after someone who's drowning because of maybe their own choice, you and I are in danger of drowning too. You and I are in danger of being injured. Just like the shepherd is now exposing himself at risk to predators, you and I have to be willing to do that. Jesus, the ultimate, Jesus is describing is the incarnation, the God of the universe becoming human flesh. Talk about risk. Talk about exposure. Can you imagine? That's what Jesus did for us. And he exposed himself to do what? To take on humanity, to suffer, to die, to be isolated, to be rejected. Why? So that he could take the debt of our sin and pay for it, and then he could destroy death in the process through the resurrection. That's what Jesus, he is the ultimate example of what it looks like to go after people and to restore them. Then the third, the third thing that it will require of us is forgiveness. Jesus goes on in verse 13, and he says, and if he finds it, the sheep or the lamb, he says, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. What in, wait a second. You got... 99 really obedient and good sheep. You got one loser over here, and he goes off on his own, and you find him, and you're happy? No, we wouldn't be happy, would we? Wouldn't you be a little frustrated? Wouldn't you think like, yo, man, you stupid sheep. I mean, I had to come all the way out here, and the 99 are up on the hill, and now I have to waste my time with you. Isn't that what we would do? And all the way back to the flock, what would we be doing? We'd tell them how bad they are. That's not in the story, is it? What does it say? He's happier about the one that he found than the, than the 99 that are already found. Because what brings joy to the heart of God is when what was lost is found. That's what human history is, is we are lost in Jesus through his death and resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is finding people throughout time to bring them back to God. And that's this whole process. And if you and I will understand, that's our response. What is that? That is forgiveness. That is saying, yeah, you made a wrong move. Yeah, you isolated yourself. Yeah, you exposed me in the process. But I'm not going to hold that against you because what's greater than your failure is the joy in finding you. If we could live that out and we could truly forgive and we could get over ourselves and our pain and what someone's done to us and reach out to them and see them saved and see them restored, the joy of that experience is greater than trying to make them pay for their sins. I had the fortune of growing up in a very great household with two wonderful parents that in many ways, they would tell you and I would tell you they're not perfect, but they demonstrated what it was to experience God's love in my life. And I've shared the story before that when I was in sixth and seventh grade, I was gripped with anxiety, completely controlled, dominated my life. I was afraid of everything. And the one thing that took on the, the kind of the lightning rod for my anxiety was school. I refused to go to school. So I did all kinds of things to, to, to avoid school. And one day I decided to run away because I was going to have to go to school that day and I didn't want to go. And so I bolted out the front door about 730 in the morning and ran 
And, you know, when you're, when you're, I don't know, was I 13 years old, 12, 13 years old, you just don't have a lot of brain power. You're just not thinking through things clearly. So I ran all the way up around our corner, up onto the main street there, and there's a shopping center. And I thought, well, I'll hang out at the shopping center. You know, I can, I can be there all day. And so when you're hanging out at a shopping center and you don't have any money, it kind of defeats the purpose. And so I stood there for, stood there for a few hours and, and realized, okay, I'm going to start getting hungry here. I don't have any money. I can't get any food. So I started to slowly work my way back towards home. And then I got about halfway back to home, and I was trying to kill time and trying to kind of in my pride, like, I'm not going back there. I'm not going back there. They're gonna, I'm going to make them feel, feel uh, uh, pain and fear for me that I'm gone. And so in all that, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to make this work. And then the, the one day in California when it, or it actually rains, it, it rained that day. You know, we don't know what that looks like anymore. And I'm pretty sure that God did that just for me. It probably just rained in my neighborhood. It didn't rain anywhere else. So then I had to kind of expedite my journey back home. And I remember I got back to the house, and I snuck on the side of the house, and I stood underneath kind of the eaves a little bit, but the, it was blowing wind. I think God must have done that too because the rain was blowing sideways. So I'm getting soaked anyway. So eventually, after about five or six hours, I ended up in the garage. I crawled in the garage, and I hid behind some boxes and thought, okay, at least I'm dry. Well, I'm still wet, but at least there's no water coming on me, and I'm not sure what I was going to do next. And so it was, I don't, it was during the week, so I don't know what day it was, but my dad is a, was a college professor at the time teaching classes down in L.A. He was not, never home. Well, he happened to be home because they had looked, gone looking for me. They couldn't find me. And so I'm tucked away in the corner of the garage, and he comes out in the garage, and I'm hiding, and he goes to his workbench. Now, I didn't figure it out at the time until after I kind of put two and two together. My dad never would work out in the garage during the week. He was always at work. So I'm like, what in the world is he doing? So he comes out, and he works for about three or four minutes, and then he goes back in. I'm like, oh, he didn't see me. He comes out. About 10 minutes later, does the same thing. It works for four or five minutes, goes back in. I'm like, man, he didn't see me again. Third time he comes out, he's working his workbench. I'm just like shivering and trying to be quiet in the corner. And then he suddenly, he says, so when do you plan coming out? I said, what? He goes, yeah, are you going to come out from behind the boxes? I'm like, I didn't know that you knew I was here. He's like, yeah, for the last hour, I knew you were here. But I was waiting to see if you would come out. Now, I didn't want to come out because my fear was I was going to catch it for running away. I was going to hear about it, and I was going to be disciplined, and I was going to be judged, and that was all what I was trying to avoid. But it was crazy. My dad said, why don't you come in the house? He said, since I've known that you've been in here for an hour, Mom's been preparing food for you. I want you to go in your room. I want you to get, in fact, going in your room, that was a little code word for you. You're going to get disciplined when I was a kid. I want you to go in your room, but then he kept talking, and he said, I want you to get dry clothes on. I want you to come out and eat the meal that mom gave you. So I'm kind of tiptoeing in like, what is going on here? Go in my room. I get changed. I come back out. I'm sitting at the dining room table. I'm eating. still can remember the soup that my mom made me. It tasted so good. And I'm waiting. Okay, now they're going to come sit at the table, and they're going to let me have it. They never did. All they said to me is we were so concerned that you were gone, and we didn't know where you were. They never said, you're a bad son. Don't ever do this again or I'll kill you and you won't be able to, which is probably what most of us would want to say. They never, never said that. And it was strange. The house was very quiet. And I remember as I reflected on that, I thought my parents had the ability to forgive me for what I had done to them. My dad had to miss work. They were out in the car driving all over the place. They were trying to find me. They were concerned all day. They had to disrupt all of what they were doing because I decided to do what I was going to do, but yet they never held that against me. They were more concerned about me being found than the fact that I had chosen to be lost. 
you and I have to be willing to live that in our, in our lives because that is what will help people be restored. If they realize the door is open and that door is filled with mercy and compassion, then they're more apt to walk back through it, which leads to the final thing. And then when we close, the worship team will come and we'll conclude with one last song. Jesus says in verse 14, the last point of restoration, what it requires is this thing called perseverance. Because it says this, Jesus says, in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God's will, God's purpose, God's desire is that nobody gets left out. Nobody goes astray. And if they do, that they are not isolated forever. That's why Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, the Lord is not slowing in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone to come into that moment like the prodigal son. They came to their senses and turned from what they used to do and went back towards God. Restoration takes perseverance because restoration, at least in my experience, never happens the first time. It doesn't. Maybe happens the 50th, 60th, or 100th time. And it requires a series of events in a person's life to keep drawing them back, keep pulling them back, keep encouraging them, keep letting them know that the door is open so that they can come back. Doesn't mean that somehow you and I endorse their actions or their behavior. You can make it clear that you disagree, but disagreement doesn't mean that you remove your love. In fact, disagreement may even mean that you love them enough to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, but even though you are doing it, I'm not going to reject you. I'm still going to trust that God is working in you to draw you back, to restore you. That takes perseverance. That takes patience. And if you're like me, I don't have a lot of either of those. I want it to be done. I want it to be over. I want it to be restored. And let's just move forward. Anybody like me? Restoration is painful and ugly and messy. Just ask Jesus. He gave his entire life to you and I. And at the end of his days, he had 12. And even those 12 just before the cross all turned their back on him. Restoration is hard. But it's what God calls us to because that's what he's doing in us. But what I want you and I to conclude with is understand this. The process of restoration comes through a community of people, not just one person. It's the image that you saw at the beginning. It's the train. It's the 40 or 50 people that had to push that train. It was only through their ability that that train could be moved and that man's leg could be saved. It's the same thing for us as a church family. And, and that's the way it works, is that most people who find themselves astray or lost or isolated and eventually find their way back, they can point to a number of individuals at certain points in their life that were instrumental in helping them find their way back. It wasn't just one person. It's perseverance over a period of time. And what I want you to see as we conclude, and the worship team will come and we'll do one last song together, is I asked, uh, many of you know Steve Schmidt. I asked Steve if he would, because he, he was here for a service, but he had to travel today, if he would on video just briefly share his testimony. Because Steve's testimony is a demonstration of people throughout his lifetime loving him enough in his brokenness to reach out and keep pulling him back in. And keep drawing him back in. Even when he'd fell over and over and over again in his addiction, people would continue to reach out. And to this day, and now, now Steve is somebody who does that for other people. So I want you to watch this, but I want you to see what you may see. You might see yourself in Steve, but what I want you also to see is see the people that Steve references because all of us are those people in the journey of somebody's process of being restored. Let's watch this together. Hi, I'm Steve Schmidt, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how uh, 
God was pursuing me even when I didn't know he was pursuing me. When alcohol became something other than recreational fun and it started taking over my life in adverse ways. And uh, around 1993, uh, my wife left me taking my four-year-old son and I had no idea what road I was going down. So what it ended up in a very short period of time was having an extreme alcohol problem along with crack cocaine. I'm gonna talk about the people who were instrumental along my walk as God pursued me with me not knowing it. First person was my sister. She was a Christian, she loved me enough to reach out and say, and take in a guy that was living homeless on the streets and take him into her home, buy him a Bible, and uh, introduce him to a guy named second person, Phil Gleason, who the night I arrived in Ventura led me in the sinner's prayer, gave my life to Christ, and um, I started going to church out there. It was 10 years of that before I actually stopped drinking. The next event was probably 1996. We, as a church, went to Promise Keepers. There's 100,000 men down at the Coliseum. I was getting six months sobriety, so on and so forth. And after the, the event, we broke into men's groups called 4 by 4s And I met a man named Dennis Warren. Spent the next two years having breakfast with him once a week at Caro's in Ventura. Dennis was instrumental in my life because he allowed me to ask these questions that were nagging me as I tried to quit drinking, love Jesus, worship, lead a good life, and have a moderate success. And he put, he put up with me for about two years and brought me along to the next step of my life. Jan and I got married around 1998, and I started going to a church up in Ojai called uh, uh, CLC. It's Assemblies of God Church. And I, ran, and, and I was trying to stop drinking the best I could. I couldn't handle it. I could not do it. I knew I had an enemy that wanted to prevent me from having the life Jesus wanted me to have. My pastor, Pastor James, James Lair, saw this, and he called me in, and he said, Steve, listen, you've got to go to this place called Teen Challenge. And I said, what's that? I'm not a teenager. I'm 45 years old. He says, it's not for teenagers, but it's a year-long live-in discipleship program, and that's what you need to do, Steve. And I fought him on it. I said, I've just got married. I've got to get a job. That's what I got to do, Pastor. I could beat this thing. He goes, no, Steve, you got to do it. I took his advice. It was the greatest advice I ever took. I spent the next year in a year-long discipleship program learning about the Holy Spirit, living with the Holy Spirit, learning how much Jesus loved me, learning that he had a purpose with me, learning Scripture, memorizing Scripture, and learning that the best warfare you can have against any demonic bondage is knowing scripture. After I got out of Teen Challenge, there was no way, there was no way that the enemy had a grasp on me one again. Now I've been sober for 11 and a half years, praise God. And um, I have a passion for helping those who are where I once was and could very easily be there again if I take my eye off of him. And uh, I'm so thankful for it. There is nothing like being free. There is nothing like being part of helping someone else along the way to obtain that same freedom that Jesus so graciously gave.